Welcome back to the Regional Anesthesia Simplified Podcast. Today, we're going to review what's called the spinal of the upper extremity blocks. So this is an old block. It was described 100 years ago, but people weren't really doing it too much before the advent of ultrasound. It was associated with really high incidence of pneumothorax, up to 6%, but it is a really great block. It has rapid onset, a dense and predictable anesthesia, high success rate. So today we're going to review the anatomy and technique of doing the supraclavicular nerve block all in under 10 minutes. So as we talked about it before, the ventral rami of C5 and 6 make up the upper trunk, the C7 becomes the middle trunk, and C8 and T1 make up the lower trunk. So the supraclavicular block gets the plexus where it's very densely packed explaining why it leads to such a dense and successful block. So when we do a supraclavicular nerve block, we're getting either the divisions or trunks. Different sources say different things. It depends on how far north you're going. So if you're closer to the inner scalene, you're obviously going to get the trunks. And if you're further away, then you're going to be getting the divisions. But either way, you're going to get a great block. On ultrasound, you might see either 3 nerves or you might see 12 nerves or somewhere in between. So there's no consistent number of nerves that you're going to see. And what you will see will consistently look like a bunch of grapes. Typically, the more superficial of these nerves innervates the proximal upper arm, including the shoulder, and the deeper nerves closer to the first rib innervate the distal aspect of the arm, including the elbow, forearm, and hand. With this block, you almost always get the axillary, but if the surgery is above the mid-humerus, then it would be wiser to use the interscalene block. But, point of fact, with a high enough volume, the supraclavicular block can be indistinguishable from an interscalene block, both in the coverage and the side effects, since a local can move cephalad through the sheath. So the plexus is between the clavicle and the first rib here. So the block is done in the supraclavicular fossa. This is a triangular depression on the lateral neck, bounded medially by the sternocleidomastoid, inferiorly by the clavicle, and superiorly by the trapezius. The probe is pointed inferiorly when using ultrasound and moved back and forth till the subclavian artery is found. It's really important with this block, maybe more so with any other blocks, to have optimal views of the plexus, the artery, the ribs, and the pleura. So the pertinent anatomy on ultrasound looks like this. The plexus looks like a bunch of grapes or it can have a honeycomb appearance. Medial to the plexus, you'll see the pulsating subclavian artery, and sometimes you might even see the compressible subclavian vein. Deep to the pleura, you see the first rib, which is a very thick white appearing line, and pleura. Superficial to the plexus is the lower belly of the omohyoid and the clavicular head of the sternocleidomastoid. And lateral to it is the middle scalene muscle. Also of note, the block often has to be supplemented with an intercostobrachial nerve field block, which innervates the skin of the upper half of the medial and posterior part of the arm. Not doing this field block can lead to sh uh, shoulder pain when the tourniquet goes up. So to actually do the block itself, the patient is in a semi-recumbent position with the head turned away from the side that you're going to do the nerve block. If you're doing this with a nerve stimulator, you find the interscaling groove, just like you do with the interscaling block, and then you trace it down to about one centimeter above the clavicle. 
but this may be hard to palpate because of the overlying omohyoid muscle. Now once you actually get nerve stimulation, the goal is to see flexion or extension of the digits when the needle is at the right place. And then you inject 20 or 30 mLs of local anesthetic. But as we talked about before, with higher volumes comes a higher risk of phrenic nerve paralysis and Horner syndrome. Now if you're seeing pectoralis stimulation, that indicates that the needle is too anterior and you need to redirect. And if you're seeing scapular stimulation, that indicates the needle is too posterior. If you're using ultrasound, the probe is placed parallel to the clavicle in the supraclavicular fossa. And the target here is to look for the subclavian artery. The brachial plexus looks like a bundle of grapes just lateral to the artery. Now, the needle entry is in plane with the probe here, and the needle moves lateral to medial. It's more important than with other blocks to have a really good view of the plexus, the artery, the first rib, the pleura, and the tip of the needle. So you need to have just continuous, optimized, real-time view of the needle tip to avoid pneumothorax. You can actually feel a distinct pop as the needle enters the sheath, and then you can deliver 20 to 30 mLs of local with frequent aspiration. As mentioned before, this is a very dense and very fast block, so it should work very quickly. But it does have a couple of risks. First, the phrenic nerve is much further away from the block site than with the interscaling approach. Ipsilateral diaphragm paralysis still occurs in the 50% of cases due to proximal spread of the local anesthetic through the sheath. You can also see a temporary Horner syndrome again from blocking the sympathetic afferents. And finally, signs of pneumothorax can be very subtle but can include coughing and shortness of breath. So I picked up three questions that we can answer with the literature regarding the supraclavicular block. Number one, what exactly is the incidence of complications from the supraclavicular block? Perlis and colleagues studied this in regional anesthesia and pain medicine where they looked at 510 consecutive ultrasound-guided supraclavicular blocks and showed no pneumothoraces, a 1% incidence of symptomatic hemidiaphragmatic paresis, and a 1% incidence of Horner syndrome. As to the question of volume of local anesthetic to use, Duggan and colleagues in 2009 published in Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, the minimum volume required for 50% of patients to have a successful block was 23 mLs and 95% of patients was 42 mLs. And Williams and colleagues in ANA 2003 compared outcomes in ultrasound versus nerve stimulation for supraclavicular block. And they found that 85% of patients had surgical anesthesia without supplementation in the ultrasound group compared with 78% in the nerve stimulation group. But the differences in the groups were not statistically significant. They also found that general anesthesia was required in 0% of ultrasound patients and 8% of nerve stimulation patients. But the time to block was 9.8 minutes in both groups. They also didn't find any clinically significant signs of pneumothoraces in either study group, but they didn't consistently do post-block chest x-rays for all patients. Also a significant point is that they estimate that at least 62 blocks should be done to have a success rate of 87%. Given that most residents don't get to this number of blocks, this means that folks that are in private practice are going to have to keep doing these blocks in order to get 
a very high success rate. There you have it folks, the basics of the supraclavicular block in under 10 minutes. As always, you can give us feedback. Our Twitter handle is at regionalpodcast, all one word, or regionalpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.